0: We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as you turn to Psalm 8, we're continuing our traditional January series that we do each and every year. Uh, uh, We begin the year with four topics, the word, prayer, racial reconciliation, sanctity of human life, a plan uh, we didn't create, but we love um, how it's been done for several decades by uh, guys like John Piper and Bethlehem Baptist, and uh, later adopted by Matt Chandler in the Village Church. Matt even openly saying, Hey, we just ripped this off from John. We like how they started the year uh, focusing on the word and prayer, spiritually speaking, um, what we eat and what we breathe, in a sense, essential to who we are as Christians, essential to who we are as a church. And then racial reconciliation, Sanctity of Human Life, in conjunction with Martin Luther King holiday and in conjunction with Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Let's talk about two issues that have huge gospel ramifications for our day and for our culture. Two issues that traditionally have been platform issues by both of our primary political parties that give us as the church the opportunity to go to the Bible and say, hey, here's where uh, maybe government and other non-church agencies are doing good work to help remedy these things, and here's where they fall short. Um, Some people might even say, well, why even continue to talk about the of human life? We've overturned Roe v. Wade. Yes, we've solved the abortion issue. And, of course, uh, a lot of you know that that's not the case. That uh, It's just changed from um, a, a nationwide issue, in a sense, to each state is working it out in its own way. And it's even become more contentious in some ways. And as we talk about these issues and make the distinctions that we need to make as the church, neither of these issues will be completely resolved until Jesus returns. Like We know that. So our hope is not in to fix all that's broken in the here and now. Um, but at the same time, the kingdom of God is here now. The person and the work of Jesus, the power of the gospel are here, and, here now, transforming hearts and lives and even broken systems. And so let's, let's not just a long for eternity where all this will be resolved, let's not, and, and therefore stick our heads in the sand. We, we don't have to do that. We can pray and we can strive to see good things happen in these areas of racial harmony and sanctity of human life. And this year we've chosen to spend the month of January in the book of Psalms digging into all these topics. So throughout the history of the church, theologians, leaders in the church have believed that the psalms should be used and reused in every Christian's daily private approach to God and in public worship. Athanasius, Benedict, Luther, Calvin, universally this was the perspective of the church. And at times like the medieval times when access to the Bible was limited and controlled in unhealthy ways by the church, it's likely the psalms were the only part of the Bible that a common person would own. Tim Keller writes in the introduction to his devotional on the Psalms called The Songs of Jesus that we are not to simply read the Psalms. We are to be immersed in them so they profoundly shape how we relate to God. The Psalms are the divinely ordained way to learn devotion to our God. And he goes on to give reasons why. In the Psalms, we have the theological history of God's people in the Old Testament. We have Doctrines of revelation and the character and nature of God and humanity and the reality of sin. We have prophetic psalms that are pointing us to the personal work of Jesus to come. But it's more than theological instruction. North African church leader Athanasius writes, Whatever your particular need or trouble, from this same book, the Psalms, you can select a form of words to fit so that you will learn the way to remedy your ill. Another author writes, Psalms anticipate and train you for every possible spiritual, social, and emotional condition. They show you what the dangers are, what you should, you should keep in mind, what your attitude should be, how to talk to God about it, how to get from God the help you need. They put their uh, undeviating understanding of the greatness of the Lord alongside our situations, so that we may have a due sense of the correct proportion of things. Like every feature and circumstance of life is transmitted into the Lord's presence and put in the context of what is true about him. Psalms, then, are not just a matchless primer of teaching, but a medicine chest for the heart and the best possible guide for practical living. Uh, He goes on, the Psalms do, uh, the Psalms lead us to do what the psalmists do, to commit ourselves to God through pledges and promises to depend on God through petition and expressions of acceptance, to seek comfort in God through lament and complaint, to find mercy from God through confession and repentance, to gain new wisdom and perspective from God through uh, meditation, remembrance, and reflection. The Psalms also help us to see God, God not as we wish or hope Him to be, but as He actually reveals Himself. The descriptions of God in the Psalter are rich beyond human invention. He is more holy, more wise, more fearsome, more tender and loving than we could ever imagine him to be. The Psalms fire our imaginations into new realms yet guide them toward the God who actually exists. This brings a reality to our prayer lives that nothing else can. Left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like to hear or to the part of God we manage to understand. But what is critical is that we speak to the God who speaks to us and to everything that he speaks to us. Lastly, Eugene Peterson writes, what is essential in prayer is not that we learn to express ourselves, but that we learn to answer God. So considering this rich tapestry of the book of songs for God's people, what can we learn to help us with this desire that we have to see racial or ethnic harmony more and more in the church and more and more in our lives. Since we began doing this uh, topic every January, going back to 2016, uh, it hasn't become easier to talk about. A lot of you know this. Uh, even each year, our question, should we even be still doing this? Some churches don't. It's too complicated. Uh, ethnic relations, tensions, injustices, supremacies, divisions have become more heated, more tense complicated. A large number of people don't enjoy the emotional energy required. And so I'd just rather not engage because it's exhausting. I personally have had conversation with both white and black people who are like, I'm good. i got enough on my plate than to deal with all that. Others are either more passionate, continue to engage for a variety of reasons, good and could be not good, or they find themselves in life situations that require their intended continued engagement. It just Continually comes up. It's part of our history as a nation. It's part of the history of every nation, honestly. Our hope in continuing to use this Sunday every year is to equip the people of the crossing to have confidence in God's word. That he gives us a framework to engage. Whether it be specific principles or specific precepts rather commands to obey. Or principles that we can apply to these issues. And God's word also gives us a filter by which to assess all the other stuff that's out there. Some of which can be helpful. All truth is God's truth. Some of which isn't. Now, we can't do everything in one sermon, but we hope and pray the conversations continue beyond a sermon. Most of all, we hope that these weeks every January, we're able to handle God's word in such a way that it grows our confidence and love for his word and how it helps us press forward in a God-given desire to see as much possible in the here and now, what we know will exist in the sweet by and by. One pastor put it like this, whatever one thinks of the civil rights movement or the pro-life movement, because really these two issues are intertwined, of human life and racial harmony, racial reconciliation, one thing is undeniable historically They have been driven by a biblically informed vision of God and the meaning of being human in relation to God. One of the passages we get this from as much as anywhere else in the Bible is Psalm 8. So let's look at Psalm 8 together. Beginning in verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty from the mouths of infants and nursing babes. You have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars that you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? The son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than God and you crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands, and you put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Psalm 8 begins with this big, glorious, intimate vision of God in verse 1 and verse 9. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Not sure if this shows up in your Bibles, but in many Bibles in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord in all caps, it's really important. Two primary words that are in reference to God in the original language of the Old Testament that are translated as Lord. One is the more generic term, Elohim, which could be translated as God or Lord in English. But it could also be used in reference to a pagan God or a sign of respect between two human beings. But when you see LORD in all caps, you know the word behind that in the original language of the Old Testament is the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. The name God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, the God of the Israelites. We see both in these verses, O LORD, our LORD. LORD, the very first LORD there in verse 1 and verse 9, is the covenantal name of God. He is our God the God that we have pledged allegiance to because he has pledged allegiance to us as God's people. This God has made himself known in a very special and intimate way to his people. David says, you are our God. We belong to you and you belong to us. The one true most high guy. God. And your name is majestic in all the earth. Therefore, you're not a tribal God. You're not the deity of one group of people. You are the God of the entire earth, which was unique among the Jewish people in their day. They were the only monotheistic culture that worshiped one God who ruled over all creation. And the psalmist is intentional, inspired by the Spirit of God, to bookend this psalm with both of these expressions because as Beautiful and as amazing as humanity is, as the pinnacle of creation, we are still just creation, His creation, made by Him. We don't create like He creates. He is supreme. We are not. He is ultimate. We are not. He is God. We are not. He alone is majestic in all the earth. It's essential we always keep ourselves in the proper place in relation to God. God is God, and we are never God. We continue in verse 2 where he says, uh, From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. From the mouths of nursing infants and babies, God has a stronghold to silence the enemy and the avenger. Like, what is it about a nursing infant or baby that could be said to be a stronghold against the enemy of God? Babies are not the picture of strength. An enemy is attacking. You're not, send the babies first to ward off the enemies. We don't do that. It's protect them. They're dependent. They're weak. They, they can't really do anything unless you do it for them. So, so what is it about the, the baby that that has in it this ability to be part of silencing the enemy and the avenger, being a stronghold against the adversary. Well, the clue to that is what David is intending to help us understand from the following verses. So verse 3, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him little less than God, and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet, the sheep and the oxen, the wild animals, the birds, the fish that pass through the currents of the seas. So David observes and considers all the wonders of the heavens, the moon and the stars, and then he remembers we are the pinnacle of this creation, I took an astronomy class uh, back in college, back in the 1900s. You can imagine how much more we know now. One of the things I remember our professor showing us were deep space pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, the Hubble had been launched into space in the early 90s, and they were sending back pictures to Earth that were blowing our minds. Now we have the James Webb Telescope, which is blowing our minds even more. But back then, this is the best that we had. And we were looking at these 8 by 10 pictures in class where... Uh, we have what seemed like stars and dots and blobs all over a page. I think I have a picture right there. And some of you know this. When you look closely at the blobs and the blurs, they weren't individual stars, but they were, in fact, individual galaxies. And our professor, Dr. Sproul's top five list, favorite professors in college, he, you know, try and count them. And, you know, good luck. Try and count all the dots and the blurs and the blobs. Hundreds and hundreds just in one 8 by 10 picture. And then he literally blew my mind right off when he said, that picture represents the amount of sky that's behind your thumb when you do that. That's just that much sky. You can imagine how many thumbs it takes to cover the entire sky. And we're in the northern hemisphere. We don't even see all of the sky. There's still the southern hemisphere sky that we've never seen unless you travel south. And every blob and blur that you see in this picture is another individual galaxy. We live in the Milky Way galaxy. We live in a medium-sized galaxy with about 200 billion stars. The largest known galaxy has an estimated 100 trillion, trillion stars. These are crazy numbers. Like, we really can't grasp this. And this is the universe that God has made. That God called into existence from nothing. David says, "When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place." Imagine how much David could see with no light pollution. All of this, literally. Some of you have seen these pictures or you've been really in dark places where you can you can see the Milky Way galaxy at nighttime. And as amazing and majestic and massive and impressive as all of that is, the pinnacle of creation is humanity. Crowned with glory and honor. Not God, less than God, but above angels with glory and honor. Not as much glory and honor as God, verse 1 and 9 show us, but some because we are a mirror reflecting the image of God to all the creation. And that's what gives us our glory and honor is that we are the only part of creation made in the image of God, which verse two is alluding to. That's what makes us so significant, even to be called a stronghold against the adversaries of God, to silence the enemy and the avenger, is even for a baby and a nursing infant is that this is part of who we are from birth, from conception in our mother's womb. We, We don't have to come out of our mom and grow up in a family, and look a certain way, or act a certain way, or achieve certain things to get this. It's inherent in who we are as human beings. This is how high and lofty humanity is, even though we're not God. It's amazing what God has put inside of humanity. We are a mirror reflecting His image. We're not the source of, we're not like a light, the source of this, He puts it in us, and we reflect it to Him in all of creation. As we live with this image, a soul that uh, that lasts beyond the life of this physical body that holds it, with the ability for rational thought, to make moral choices for which we're held accountable, to be self-conscious, self-aware, all part of this image of God that God has put in humanity alone and no other part of creation. And therefore, we show the reality of the Creator and how we are like Him in some ways and in how we rule over creation with Him, which is why we want to be good stewards of creation, why we want to rule with God over creation as He would, over the sheep and the oxen and the wild animals and the birds and the fish. And here's a connection to our desire for racial and ethnic harmony. This is true of every single human being on the face of the earth. Every single human being, the current estimate of 8.1 billion humans, the estimated 117 billion humans who have ever lived on earth, all created equally in the image of God, endowed with this glory and this honor. More glory and honor than that amazing universe that we just imagine in our minds. Beyond that, it's incredible. Therefore, because this is inherent in every human, every human being is of equal value and worth and esteem and care and concern. We saw this in 1 Peter 2, 17. Honor everyone. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. But honor everyone. Respect everyone. The fundamental issue behind that idea is that every single human being is worthy of that inherent respect and honor because they are a fellow image bearer. Someone in a church once told me, well, my respect has to be earned. And I I said, no, I hope I was gracious. No, it, it doesn't. Your trust has to be earned. I wouldn't say trust everybody, but it does say honor. We give respect and honor because it's inherent in who we are as humans all people, all the time. And so the degrading, demeaning, spiteful, harsh, belittling way in which we speak about those who are different than us, who look different than us, who, who believe different, maybe who vote different, that's become so common in our culture of no decorum is not honoring and respectful of fellow image bearers. Like if anyone different from us, looks different, believe different, vote different, act different, becomes an enemy, even our enemies are worthy of our respect and honor. And Jesus would say, even our love, love our enemies. Which is also built on the foundation of fellow image bearers made by God, crowned with glory and honor, inherently worthy of honor and respect. And so example application as we enter this wonderful world of a presidential election cycle, you may have friends or family, coworkers, neighbors, whoever, who will say or post things that are less than honoring about their political opponents. And so it's really easy to get into a conversation with mom or dad or aunt or uncle or grandma, even sometimes granny does it. You may not agree with them, you know, hey granny, you may not ag- agree with this person or their party on those issues, but do you really think they're the enemy? Like, do you think we need to be so insulting, demeaning, derogatory about them? Dismissive? Like, all the ways and modes of treating fellow image bearers that's less than honoring, that is just flavoring our culture. You can't even even watch political discourse anymore. It's unwatchable. I used to watch presidential debates for fun. I haven't watched one in years. It's because it's a joke because of how people talk about each other and treat each other? Even in disagreement with people who are on different positions, can you state their position in a way that they would agree that's accurate and respectful? And It's not just straw man arguments and red herrings. Can you state in a way that's respectful that their ideas and suggestions have a place at the table in our nation of ideas and theories and freedom of speech and thought? And guys, that's just one of the bare basics of how we treat every image bearer. Worthy Inherently of dignity and respect and honor, which means racialization, ethnocentrism, ethnic superiority obviously has no place. If we're supposed to give every single image bearer respect and honor, then certainly there's no place for racism or ethnocentrism, ethnic superiority, the idea that certain races are better or more valued or more deserving or more worthy or more intelligent is unbiblical and therefore evil in every sense of the word. It was the mindset of Margaret Sanger who helped found Planned Parenthood. She is adopting principles drawn straight out of naturalistic evolutionary philosophies where human beings are not created in the image of God, but we simply did a better job of surviving the ooze and the slime and got on top of the mountain of species than any other species. In her book, Women in the New Race, Sanger wrote, The most merciful thing a large family can do to one of its infant members is to kill it. She said in her book The Proof of The Pivot of Civilization, the so-called inferior races were in fact human weeds and a menace to civilization. She was part of the eugenics movement inspired by Thomas Malthus that wanted to purge the human race of defectives, delinquents, and dependents through calculated birth control, including abortion. It's this evil devaluing of image bearers that leads to over 200 years of chattel slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow laws, the extinction of 6 million Jews in the Holocaust, the Armenian genocide in Turkey, the genocide in Rwanda between the Tutsu and the uh, the Hutus, the Japanese slaughter of 6 million Chinese and Indonesians, Koreans and Filipinos and Indo-Chinese, the Japanese internment camps in America during World War II, tens of millions of babies have been aborted throughout the world over time. And on and on we could go throughout human history and even stuff happening today. And we could sit here this morning in this building in 2024 and we could feel good about ourselves because we're not a part of that. We would never do that. That's pure evil. But this lack of respect of image bearers can be found in more subtle and seemingly less overtly evil ways sitting on the pews of our churches every week, devaluing in our hearts other image bearers, dismissing them as less important. Conversations I've had with people that I've pastored or have known how other races are obviously less intelligent, how, yeah, I have this issue of racism, but everybody has the sin that they struggle with. It's just my struggle. And or how God, like literally people still believe this, God's cursed other races since the sins of Noah or the sin of Cain. And certainly marriage between races or different ethnicities is evil and wrong. Like This this stuff's not going away. It's still circulating and circulating in our area. Maybe with people in your family, extended family, coworkers, who knows where it will come up. And when confronted with this Ongoing sin and brokenness that's still present because of ethnocentrism and ethnic superiority, racialization. The Psalms also help us give words to our grief. Psalm 6 I am weary from my groaning. With my tears, I dampen my bed and drench my couch every night. My eyes are swollen from grief. Yes, we can and should, praise God, because good and justice have happened. By God's grace, we're not where we were. But the tensions and the struggles and in some ways disparities still remain. And the lack of racial harmony certainly still remains. We have hope also because we know the promises of passages like Revelation 5. Where John writes, you, talking about Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain, the Lion of the tribe of Judah... You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on earth. And we know from Revelation 7, this, this plan that God instituted through Jesus, this is what he set out to accomplish. We know from Revelation 7, it actually is going to happen. Where John writes, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who's seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Around the throne of the Lamb will be Caucasian Americans and African Americans and Kenyans and Nigerians and Irish and Scottish and English Around the throne of the Lamb, there will be the Wanchi and the Aceh and the Laz and the Zaza and the Baiman, the Bonan, the Tibetan Jone and the Agnobi. This unity of all ethnicities as one is truly, only, ultimately desired and planned by God in His kingdom and certainly only accomplished by God in His kingdom. And we are a part of that. It is a gospel issue. It's not the gospel. The gospel is a person work of Jesus, but it is an outworking ramification of the gospel because if it's not happening, it's because the gospel is not spreading as God intends for the gospel to spread. If, if the church, and when I say the church, I mean universal church, all of God's people in all nations and lands, just says, you know what? We don't care about the Yagnobis hearing about Jesus Christ then the church is being disobedient to what God has called them to do, to get the gospel to all peoples. And God will discipline his people for that. And so we say that this is our vision as a church, that we desire all people to enjoy Christ always. If that's truly our desire and it's God-given, in other words, it's God's desire, therefore it's our desire. He puts his desires in us. It's not us trying to do something to earn or justify ourselves or make ourselves look great or pat ourselves on the back. But this is truly a desire because we've been transformed by the gospel. And so more and more, our hearts and lives desire what God desires. And we desire what God desires for all people, all image bearers created by God, a little lower than God, but with glory and honor to enjoy Christ. Always, in all circumstances, all 160,000 people in Washtenaw Parish. We desire, because God desires, for all 91,400 white or non-Hispanic people in Washtenaw Parish to enjoy Christ always. For all 60,000 black or African American, every single one of the 3,500 image bearers with Hispanic ethnicity, all 2,600 image bearers who are multiracial and not Hispanic, 1,700 Asian image bearers in Washtenaw Parish, the 178 Native American or Alaskan image bearers, and the 609 who have some other way to designate their ethnicity, we desire because God desires every single one of those image bearers to find their ultimate and most satisfying joy in Jesus all the time. We're not content with just who shows up in this room every Sunday. We're driven by God to see the gospel saturate to everyone. And if that's true, that should have effect how we live life and how we do life as a church. And whatever degree, seeing this joy in Christ spread to all peoples and watch to all perish, to whatever degree that's cross-cultural missions for us, then that requires us to adapt the empathy, and love, and humility required for cross-cultural missions. Just like the V family, and the S family, and other families who have gone out to other cultures to share the gospel, to plant churches, to, to translate the scriptures, there's certain things you have to do. Like I'm, uh, we'll be in Kenya this week, and part of our time there with the S family will be me preaching in a Kenyan church, will be me doing a seminar for like 50 Kenyan pastors. Um... And I'm, my immediate reaction, why did they want me to do that? And James is like, I promise they do. You have experience. You can share good things. I'm like, okay, I'll trust you. I'll trust the Lord mainly. But all in my mind as I'm preparing for things I'll talk about, there's this culture. There's not a language barrier. They, they, they speak English. But there's this cultural barrier. Like, well, I mean, here's some principles. This is what it looks like here. I'm not sure what it needs to look like here. You guys figure this out. And that's the mentality of cross-cultural missions. We're not here to, um, um, uh, to create hoops for you to jump through to be like us. We're trying to build bridges to understand your culture and how the gospel can be translated to transform your life where you're at. We're not converting here or trying to convert people to whiteness or blackness or republicanness or democraticness, or Americanness or conservativeness or liberalism. We're here to proclaim the freedom we have available to us in Jesus and his powerful and life-transforming good news, which translates to all cultures and languages and transforms people in all cultures and languages so that we can enjoy and love the beauty and diversity of every people and culture without idolizing any culture because they all have good and they all have brokenness and they all need Jesus any good missionary to any culture you seek to understand the stories of the culture like we don't just need to know Washtenaw Parish in 2024 we need to grasp the stories that got us to 2024 we didn't just show up out of a wormhole we're built on stories and people of the past that still affect us today again not to make our stories ultimate but to help Every image bearer see how their story is part of this bigger story, the story of God and redemption where all of this is headed. It required and it is worth the blood and life of Jesus to make this possible. All stories of all peoples becoming part of his story. People from all peoples gathered around his throne. This is how valuable and costly this issue of racial harmony is to God, the life of his son. And the more we see this kind of kingdom gospel uh, driven diversity now, the more God can be seen and glorified in and through his people. And so I would say like the degree, to the degree that this resonates within your heart, to the degree that you want to fight your own prejudices and your own tendencies to have ethnocentrism or even feelings of ethnic superiority. and, And you're like, this is not okay for me to think this way about people. Praise God. That's the good work of Jesus and the Spirit of God in you. Continue to lean into that and to submit to the work of the Spirit in you. And to the degree that we're striving to love and care and empathize with and listen and learn and pursue genuine loving relationships with gospel intentionality with all ethnicities, here and everywhere, praise Jesus. And to the degree that we're disengaged and apathetic and unloving and uncaring, I have good news for you. Jesus is here. If you're aware of that, that's the work of Jesus to call you to repentance, to call you to faith, to call you to warm your heart to the things that God loves and cares about and to desire what He desires and to repent of apathy or indifference or just negligence on issues like this. And so, However the Spirit is speaking to you, to his people, Jesus is here to do his work. I want to pray for us, and then we'll take communion together. Father, thank you for the good work of Jesus, that he came and lived and died and rose from the dead so that we could be his people. Thank you that uh, the people of God don't just look like us in this room. That it's this beautiful tapestry of humanity from all ethnicities, all ages, socioeconomic groups, men and women and children. It's a, it's a family so diverse and so beautiful. The only thing that could draw us together and keep us together with all of our differences now and forever is the person and work of Jesus. And so ultimately, he gets the glory. Ultimately, we worship him. Father, I pray for the ways in which Jesus has spoken to hearts today, that we would respond in repentance and faith, that we would obey the leading of the Spirit of God. Thank you for the good work that you continue to do in us. I pray that this desire for racial harmony, this desire to see a diverse yet united people—that we know is coming. We know it exists around your throne one day. That that desire w- would lead to more and more good things in the here and now. Good things in Monroe, West Monroe, Washita Parish, as your people obey the leading of your Spirit, obey the Word of God, and walk this out. Help us, God. Help us not just to listen to a sermon on a Sunday and, okay, I thought about that for a little while, move on. But let it linger with us. Let it be something we we dig into because we're driven by you and your desire. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.